1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. And this week I'm happy to say we have Jeffrey Jackson on the show and we'll be talking about his new book, Paris Underwater, How the City of Light Survived the Great Flood of 1910. You may have heard that we had a large flood here in Iowa in 2008, and in fact, as I speak, there's another flood going on. I don't believe they have potable water in Ames. It's been a long time since there was a flood in Paris, but there was a very big one in 1910, and we should thank Jeff Jackson for telling us the story of it. It's revealing in a number of ways, as you will hear. The most interesting thing I found was that for all of the talk at concerning social disintegration as a result of modernity, in fact, the people of Paris pulled together, rather like the people of Iowa pulled together when we have floods. And this suggests that modern nation states are actually quite strong. When they're under pressure, they don't tend to fall apart, as many social scientists predicted, but in fact, they come together. And I think we saw this in World War I and in World War II. But without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you very much. It's hot and humid here in Iowa. You are in Memphis, Tennessee. Is that correct?
0: That's right. It's also hot and humid here.
1: Well, there you go. Let me tell our (laughs) listeners that we have Jeff Jackson on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Paris Underwater, How the City of Light Survived the Great Flood of 1910. If you follow the news, you may know that here in Iowa we have a flood every year, it seems like now, and uh, two years ago it was uh, the University of Iowa. We uh, were deluged, I think is the word. Um, and uh, this year we have Iowa State, which is underwater. I, I hope that if the governor is listening to this, that he will uh, learn to build things up rather than down. <laughs> up up is good. As a friend of mine says, you never see a farmer's house in a valley in Iowa. They're always on the sort of highest part. But um, so we get those occasionally, and so do they in Paris. And I, I really enjoyed reading Jeff's book. It, it was quite eye-opening for a number of reasons, and we'll come uh, to them. Some of them were actually quite significant in, in the course of the interview. But before we touch on the book, Jeff, let me ask you to say a few words about yourself
0: well, um I was born uh in Nashville, Tennessee, actually just up the road from where I live now, um, and was an undergraduate at Vanderbilt University and majored in history and um actually did my honors thesis about uh, about environmental issues um about the green movement in Britain in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies and so I kind of kind of got interest, introduced to environmental questions early on and um, but then uh, went to graduate school at the University of Rochester uh, where I studied with Alice Conklin and really became a French historian um, and wanted to look at the history of Paris. Um, and I wrote a book about uh, jazz music, the reception of jazz music in Paris in the 1920s and 1930s called Making Jazz French um, that touched on questions of culture and race and uh, colonial context and and music and performance and, and a lot of, of issues um, and things that related to the city and <clears throat> when i um, that that book it 's sort of funny that that work on uh, on jazz in Paris sort of led me to think more deeply about um, the the urban culture and that 's kind of where in some ways Paris underwater came from because I was still thinking very much about um, about the city and what 's going on there and sort of what you know how Paris functions. Um, culturally, as well as in as an urban space.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, wh- how long did it take you to write the book?
0: Um, it's a lot of research. About, here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it took me about uh, four years or so, mm-hmm. um, and I had a sabbatical year in there, which which helped uh, quite a bit.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's a, that's actually a very fast turnaround for a, a monograph, especially a monograph of uh, this quality. So, why don't we actually launch into discussion of the book itself? Um, one of the things I, I want to talk about is the background of what we would call in the United States urban renewal in the late 19th century. And what I wanted you to talk about was the kind of fundamentally, I guess I'd call it medieval character of places like Paris in the first quarter, half of the 19th century, and how they were changed in the later 19th century. Because this really sets the scene. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. particularly of Haussmann. Mm-hmm. Go ahead.
0: Well, um, it's true. I mean, uh, the the story that, that I try to tell about the flood is, uh, in many ways, a much longer story. Um, the flood doesn't just sort of come out of nowhere, of course, um, but it's part of a of a broader story about the history of the city of Paris and about what has happened to it um, over a longer period of time. And and Houseman is a really crucial figure in in my story, as he is in so many stories. And um, haussmann was the the prefect of the Seine under Napoleon III, Um, and was really responsible in many ways for rebuilding much of Paris. And uh, he expanded the size of the city. He annexed uh, the surrounding communities so that in 1860, the the size of Paris basically doubled um, and the population basically doubled. So um, when we think of Paris, when most Americans especially think of Paris, um, what we really are thinking of is Haussmann's Paris. We think of, of the Paris that was created in the... Um, the latter part of the 19th century, um, and one of the things that 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 did was, to, in many ways, to give a sort of visual uniformity to the city. But Hausmann was also interested in modernizing the city, making it um, a showcase for the world. You know, making it sort of a, a world capital, a world city where people would come and um, and see the sort of modern, you know, what the modern city could look like. And um, it was showcased in in multiple um, uh, world fairs, universal expositions um, starting in the 1860s and then, of course, um, after Haussmann um, in the 1880s and at the turn of the century as well. But, um, but the other thing that Haussmann did was to also renovate the, sort of the basic um, infrastructure of the city. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is the, the renovation of the water and the sewer systems. Um, and that was something that, that would come to play an important role uh, in the flood. These these sewers that everyone sort of now believed were the most modern, most up-to-date, most wonderful sewers in the world, um, ironically actually made the flood worse in 1910 because they carried water into neighborhoods that no one, that, that water couldn't have gone on its own, mm-hmm. um, and that no one really expected water to go to. Mm-hmm. So it was the sort of, uh, one of the things I was interested in, in the book was sort of the irony between this um, modern technological city and the forces of nature and how many people in Paris believed that they had had come to control nature through this modern city. But in fact, it, it worked the other way around.
1: Yeah, we think we control the uh, Iowa River every apparently every three years. We, right. <laughs> <laughs> so in any event, I, I kind of want to again touch on this. this uh, One thing that I think that many Americans, and I know this is true of me, I grew up in the Midwest, where all cities are built on grids. They were planned mm-hmm. by people with um, protractors. And uh, this is not true of European cities. They grew organically. Right. Uh, so they had, tend to have a circular character until Haussmann, and these people kind of carved boulevards through them, what we think of as boulevards. And that's the, the Paris that I think most Americans will recognize. And then right. another thing that I think many Americans don't, uh, and I was one of them as well, that don't really bring to mind very often is the notion of sewers in general. We take them right. for granted. Most people don't know that there's this vast complex of Tunnels underneath all their cities. Right, right. And th- there hadn't been any such thing in France. I don't know. Tell us a little bit about that. It had been, were there, when, when were sewers first put into Paris?
0: Well, the sewers actually were quite old in Paris. I mean, it goes back centuries. Um, so it's not that Haussmann builds sewers for the first time. What he does is he expands them and he, he makes them bigger. And he, ex- he extends this network. Um, because, you know, one of the things, as I said, he's, that he's done is doubled the size of the city. So um so that immediately creates a problem of how do you get water to all of these new residents and then how do you get waste away. Um and it just becomes a sort of technological puzzle that, that they solve and um and it works it works quite well, but it does require a lot of, of, of that sort of underground work that you're right is is very much out of people's mind, out of out of their eyesight. Um it's not something that we think about. When we, you know, when we visit Paris, unless you go on, this, on this, the tour of the sewers. And, and actually, that's um, just to kind of go back a little bit to the, it's interesting, you mentioned you talking, wanted me to talk about the sewers because that kind of goes back in some ways to the genesis of this project. Um, I didn't know anything about the this flood um, in 1910 until I took the sewer tour. Um, you can go in Paris, you can go underground, take a tour of the sewers. And I was there with uh, my then fiance. Which is a very romantic place, by the way, if anyone's <laughs> uh interested, you can hey, take your sweetie
1: uh, let's go to the sewers yeah
0: exactly <laughs> um I always say she 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 married me anyway, despite the fact that I took her to the sewers but um we we walked around in in the sewers, and it's 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 very interesting to go down there because you get a sense of the scale of the of the these tunnels that are underneath the streets um and of course it's it's very smelly and very, you know, (laughs) uh, you have to hold your hand over your nose. But um, in the, in the, in this area that they have open for tourists, there was this historical display um, with a lot of photographs of the sewer, sort of talking about the history of the sewer. And that's where I first saw a photograph of the 1910 flood was uh, was in this historical display in the sewers. I had never known anything about it before. And so I saw that photograph um, and I, I tucked it away in the back of my brain and I thought, Oh, that's an interesting um photograph. I'd like to know more about the the this flood and how it affected the sewers and, and other things. Um and I thought, you know, maybe one day that might make an interesting book. Um and that was the that was the summer of two thousand five. Mm-hmm. And then of course the fall of two thousand five was Hurricane Katrina. Um and so that, that photograph of the flood came back to me, um, that I'd see in the sewers when I was watching Hurricane Katrina unfold on television. And that's kind of when I began to think about this specific project. I had obviously, as I said before, been interested in Paris more generally. But the flood kind of came back to me as something that um, I, I felt like I really needed to work on that at that particular moment with the stuff happening with, with Katrina mm-hmm. um, all around us. But, but that's why I, I like to say that this book was sort of born in the sewers of Paris. Mm-hmm.
1: So these sewers are not like the sewers. These are sewers like we see in movies, I think, I think Americans would. We don't really have sewers you can walk around here. I think, I think we have them here in Iowa City. I think we have sewer pipes. Yeah, yeah we don't have these big sewers. Um, so uh, waste was taken directly um, from the street, so to say, and thrown into the sewers, and then it was evacuated... To the Seine? Did it go right into the river?
0: Um, it it did a little bit downstream from Paris. Um, it was sort of funneled through collectors um, and then and and thrust downstream and uh, and kind of out into the river
1: uh, at that point. And just to, just to be clear here, we're talking about. Um, I'm reminded of that uh, joke. You know what fish do in the water? Everything. We're talking about all <laughs> sewage here, aren't we?
0: Um, to some extent, I, by this point most houses in Paris still used a cesspool or had, uh, uh, you know, it's called, you know, night soil, uh, waste, human waste that, that crews of people might have to come around and collect and, and take away. Um, it's only sort of at this point that they're beginning to connect houses directly to the sewer. Uh-huh. Um, and in some ways, most of what... Um, most of what is going in, say on a normal on a normal rainy day, you know, if there's a lot of water in the streets, um, it's mostly street runoff that's going into the sewers. Mm-hmm. But in 1910, in the flood, um, as the Seine is invading people's houses and pushing up into people's basements, it also pushed up into cesspools and and into you know other waste collection areas. So you really did end up with this sort of mix of everything um, in the sewers: street waste, human waste, garbage. Um, yeah basically anything, and one of the the other things that happens, of course, during the flood is because uh they they have this basic problem of what to do with the city's accumulating garbage um because three of the four garbage incinerators in Paris were flooded out, and mm-hmm. so the the city the only thing that the city can figure out to do is to just dump all of the the solid waste you know the regular garbage of the city back into the river <laughs> into a swollen flooded river um and so you you see i saw lots of photographs of of garbage collecting on the bridges and on the riverbanks and of course you can imagine downstream uh a lot of towns complained and said you know you're just dumping your garbage and and we're we're end up we end up with this with the stuff in our in our town or in our village so it mm-hmm. created some some tension there
1: mm-hmm. yeah pardon the fact that i'm dwelling on uh Matters fecal, but I, you use this word. I've heard this word many times. Cesspool. I'm not an urban historian, nor am I a historian of human detritus. What exactly is a cesspool?
0: Um, well, I'm not really an expert on cesspools uh, myself either. But I, it's just—I think it's just a—it's mainly just a, a, a pool that collects um, human waste, yeah, um, right. sort of what we would think of as sort of raw sewage, kind of. Uh, from a household or from a neighborhood, um, and then it 's later sort of carted away
1: uh-huh. now did these in houseman 's time did they have running water and did they have water closets, or did they all use chamber pots
0: um i think it's it's kind of a there 's a transitional moment where you're seeing more and more houses that are being built, especially a little bit later, but i think even even beginning um to some extent at house where you 're beginning to see uh some running water I see. Um, but it's it's you know, there's, that's one of the things that's interesting, I think, about this moment where the flood happens in 1910 is because it is this kind of transitional period where, you know, you have this renovated modern city, you have the sewers, you have um, by the turn of the century, you have electricity, more and more uh, buildings, uh, houses have electricity, um, you you know, you have um, uh, natural gas that's being put into to many buildings. But at the same time, you also still have most most people, especially working class people, are still using oil lamps to heat or to light their houses and coal to heat their houses mm-hmm. um, rather than electricity and natural gas. So there's this kind of, you know, this moment where you, you see the beginnings of what we think of as the sort of modern urban kind of housing, you know, those sort of amenities, but you still have a very 19th century city at the same time. So I think that's another reason why the flood is kind of a, a shock because, you know, people feel like um, at this point, it's the very beginning of the new century, the 20th century. We're on the cutting edge. They've just had this this World's Fair in 1900 that showcased a lot of wonderful technological innovations, including electricity. Um, and so we feel like we're moving to this, no pun intended, brighter future. Um, and then the flood comes along and kind of knocks out, you know, uh, knocks out what, this, this feeling of being in a modern city and, and this sort of like being thrust, thrust backwards to a time before Houseman, Uh mm-hmm. when there were still these sort of basic problems of waste and darkness and cold and, you know, what to do with the sewage, what to do with, you know, some of these things.
1: Yeah, that's the way we feel every three years here. And that's the way they feel <laughs> right now in Ames, where they don't have potable water. So right, right. The, the, we, we have these people here in Iowa. They're very, they're very nice people, and they're called hydrologists, I think. Mm-hmm. And they're uh, statistically very adept. And they make these... Um, these topographical maps that show the floodplain, and so we mm-hmm. have the hundred-year floodplain and the five-hundred-year floodplain. Now we have to tear these things up every three years, as I've said. Uh, did they have similar sorts of maps in uh, circa 1900 in, in um, France?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they, there was definitely an understanding of uh, of the way in which the river worked. And um, one of the people that I talk about in the book is Eugène Bel- Belgrand, who was the chief of the water service under Hausmann. So, um, you know, so during houseman's time in the in the eighteen fifties and eighteen sixties um when so much of this renovation of the city is going on, Belgrand, who is also really sort of the key person who is designing the sewers and designing you know water distribution through the city, part of what he's also doing is studying the river um and and taking measurements and and learning about and understanding how the 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 regular rise and fall of the river works and you know how it moves through the city and um and Belgrand is one of the people who really you know he he writes a, a lot of of stuff that will come be it'll be useful for later generations of engineers as they're thinking about the Seine but um one of the things that Belgrand does is that he makes a recommendation that they should raise the walls of the river um, in certain places, to prevent any possible flooding or to you know to to guard against it but um later later engineers don 't uh, don 't follow his advice in in many ways largely because of aesthetic concerns They don 't want to block the views of of these beautiful new buildings that have been built under houseman um and so there 's this sort of tension between the the science of of understanding the river and the sort of Desire to have you know the the beautiful experience of of the city of, the, of this new modern renovated city of Paris.
1: Yeah, I mean rivers are one of the very few uh, controlling rivers. One of the very few cases in which I sometimes wish that Iowa was a despotism, uh-huh. because it's a classic <laughs> public goods problem. You know, somebody right. builds a dam upstream, and that affects the flow of the river, and then they make a release, and then it sort of backs up someplace else, and uh, you know, it's as if the it's as if the the flow of water to your toilet was dependent on your neighbor's toilet water. That's, you just mm-hmm. it's, it's unacceptable. But uh, yeah. I, this is a problem that, you know, still exists in the United States today, is we, we just don't mm-hmm. seem to be able to get this right. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me they couldn't get it quite right in uh, Paris at the time. So um, they, the, the the Seine flooded, I won't say pretty regularly, but people knew that it was going to happen, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the Seine tended to to rise basically every winter, more or less. Um, but, you know, what people talked about was the idea of sort of regular flooding, normal flooding, um, where the river would rise several feet um, and people would look at it and, you know, and that would be, um, you know, there might be some infiltration into some buildings. There might be some uh, problems here and there in low-lying areas, but basically it was sort of an expected thing. And that was, again, part of what, you know, Belgrand's study of the river had, had revealed and everyone sort of understood that. Um, and they had made a number of, of, um, adjustments, you know, to make sure that walls were supported and, and had, and were providing protection from the, the normal regular flooding that, that happened, uh, more or less every winter. Mm-hmm. But in 1910, you had a sort of strange, um, coming together of multiple circumstances that, that really no one could have foreseen. It was, it was warmer than normal, warmer than normal river, winter, so that, um, Things like, you know, up in the mountains where the Seine has its headwaters, uh, there were it was more snow melting, um, and that runoff is going into the Seine and also into its tributaries. Um, and you had uh, the fact that the previous summer had been very rainy and very wet, and so the groundwater levels were much higher than normal already to start with. Um, and even before this big flood in, in late January 1910 that I talk about in the book, There had been a couple of smaller floods. The the river had already risen and and fallen a couple of times before, back in December of 1909 and very early January 1910. Um, And so there was already a lot of water around. Um, And so just this kind of combination of things. And then on top of it, you had uh, basically a big storm that parked over the English Channel and northern France for several weeks right around the new year of 1910 and continued to dump more and more precipitation into this already uh, you know, saturated soil. And uh, so it, the water really had nowhere to go um, except it couldn't be absorbed into the soil, so it could only go into the river, um, but the river could only hold so much. Um, and that's part of really what created the, the problem uh, in 1910. And that was something that really no one could have, could have foreseen, I don't think.
1: Yeah, this is something that gets us here in Iowa all the time. Because mm-hmm. people don't realize that the level of the river is not a terribly good indication of the saturation of the groundwater. So this is what happened in Ames, is that uh, it wasn't so much that the river flooded it's that the river came up out of the ground. <laughs> right, right. And that's what happened right. here, didn't it?
0: It is exactly. Um the 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 river didn't really overflow the banks of of the Seine and at least not during in not not in the middle of the city, not in the heart of the of the city. Um instead what it did was it it came from below. It bubbled up from below. And so you would have a situation where People would go to bed one night, uh, and the river would be high. The river was high, and everybody knew that it was it was climbing. But they would wake up the next morning, and they'd find several feet of water in their basement. And that water had come from either uh, so trickling in through the soil um, and coming into people's basements, or <clears throat> or it had come up through the sewers um, because the sewers in in buildings that were connected to the sewers very often there was a drain um, in the floor of the basement to allow any water that that might have come into the basement to then drain into the sewers. And so a lot of people would go to the basement, see this water uh, in the basement, pull the plug, thinking that the water was all <laughs> going to drain into these sewers. But ironically, you know, they didn't realize they were removing the last barrier between their house or their building or whatever it was and these overflowing sewers that were now able to push up uh, even more. And not just into basements, but also into the streets um and just sort of everywhere and then it began to run um you know and flow through the streets and the other the other thing that i haven't mentioned yet that's also another part of the story that also goes back to this this idea of the modern city kind of working against itself is the sewer uh, excuse me is the metro system the subway system um the the metros had been opened in 1900 for the world's fair it was you know the modern way to move around the city it was the new um transportation Mode um that allowed you to go from one side of the city to another very quickly, and there were uh and so and water got into a lot of these metro tunnels and including um one that was under construction and I tell this story in the in the book because I think it's a really interesting little anecdote that, that says a lot um there was one of the the metro lines that was under construction it's what's uh currently called Metro line twelve it runs north south. Um, and the line, the, the, the tunnel goes underneath the, the channel of the river. The water infiltrated this metro line that was under construction, infiltrated it on the left bank near the Orsay, what is now the Orsay Museum at the time, it was the Orsay train station, um, got into this subway tunnel, and the water actually traveled back underneath the Seine itself through this man-made subway tunnel and then up onto the right bank um, a long way away from the from the banks of the river into a neighborhood where nobody thought it would flood. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's another one of those sort of ironies of the story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So when the water starts to appear in people's basement, and it's pretty clear that, um, well, let's, let's dwell on that for a moment. Here in Iowa, we get a pr- pretty decent intelligence on when this is going to happen and how bad it's going to be. Um, when the water started to rise in the basements, did people know that it was going to be... The next thing to catastrophic, and did they start to, the city start to take measures, or were they just sitting on their hands?
0: Um, I think it was probably, in some ways, a combination of both. At first, I think there was so much shock and sort of surprise um, that because no one had expected this, that that some people, I think, probably just didn't know what what to do. But once it became clear that um, you know the water level was was rising and and it was causing uh, a great deal of damage and, and devastation in people's uh, homes and businesses and and in the streets you know i mean you, you see photographs um and I have some in the book and i have some on a website that i created parisunderwater.com where you can see more photos um you see big gashes in the street i mean so the in some ways the the, the physical space of the city is crumbling um and once people begin to realize that they really have to to do, to do something if they're in one of those affected areas and so a lot of people um have to leave their homes Pack up and go to um, emergency shelters. And one of the things that that does happen very quickly is that the city, as well as various organizations like the Catholic Church, the French Red Cross, um, they open up emergency shelters throughout the city, <clears throat> and people go and and basically have to evacuate and live um, live on this on charity for some, in some cases weeks uh, uh, while while the water is still high, and then when it recedes and and people are able to get back into their houses um i talk I try to talk in the book about a lot of this this sort of response you know there is a there is a great outpouring of um of mutual aid and assistance on the part of people all across the city um and indeed all across France and around the world i mean Paris really was a world capital, and this was world news and so there were um you know fundraising efforts all around the world people were donating money. Um, through through the Red Cross or through other organizations or just sending money um, to the city, and in the hopes of of helping people out, and um, <clears throat> but it, but but the government is definitely involved. You asked if there was a government response. They, the the government does have to swing into action, and they um, the military comes to the city. Um, they begin to you know float through police and soldiers and sailors begin to float through the city streets in boats, looking to uh, find people who are stranded in their houses so that they can rescue them. Take them to a shelter. Um, in some cases, some people refused to evacuate, and so um, police and soldiers, or firefighters, or whoever rescue workers would uh, bring them food um, so that they could continue to to live uh, in their own home if, if they refused to evacuate. So there was definitely a lot of a lot of activity that that was um, that people really had to sort of decide what you know how do we how do we handle this? Um, and one of the conclusions that I come to in the book is that basically, um, even though this was a huge, you know, uh, chaotic moment, that people basically handled it pretty well, that people came together, the city came together, and they were able to survive on a kind of a sense of of mutual cooperation and realizing that they were, in fact, all in this together.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to actually dwell on that a little bit. I'm a kind of student of late 19th century um, social theory, and uh, I was very interested to see that, uh, I believe it's in the epilogue of the book, or mm-hmm. uh, the penultimate chapter, I can't remember, you you touch on this by way of uh, Emile Durkheim mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. his notion of anomie or n- normlessness, and I, and I think that there were many, I mean I know that there were many social philosophers, we might call them, that were very worried about modernity breaking bonds, uh, particularly right, in right. urban environments. It seems to me that um, this was a kind of, one of the first Test cases for those that uh felt. And you were talking about Marx and Weber and Durkheim and Freud and the whole bunch of them. Uh and, and I think they didn't fare very well. Mm-hmm. That is this theory that things were going to fall apart. Maybe you could talk a little about that.
0: Yeah, I it was one of the things that struck me as I was doing this because, you know, I when I came into this project I, I hadn't I hadn't realized that there was a whole there's a whole field of disaster studies. <laughs> and so I began to read some some of the work in, in this literature of disaster studies and one of the things that a lot of people who, who talk about disasters talk about the fact that that it's not like we typically think it's going to be. You know, we, we have this kind of movie vision uh, because, all the, you know, in a movie, like an asteroid hits the Earth or volcano erupts and everything is chaos and everybody's running for the hills and it's, you know, sort of everybody for themselves, um, survival of the fittest. But a lot of the disaster studies literature <laughs> suggests that it's just the opposite. That in fact people realize that their own survival depends upon the survival of their neighbors, and that it's that what you find is that social ties are reinforced in these moments of of immediate crisis. And when I started reading that, I, I, I thought back to people like Durkheim and Georg Simmel and George Beard and and other people who are sort of talking about you know the modern condition at the turn of the century and who are having you know who are very famous for these critiques, as you as you just said, of the idea, you know, or sort of the critique of modern society, and saying, well, you know, this is it's causing us to break all these bonds, and people are moving away from families, and they're becoming isolated and and lonely, and um, you know, leading to suicide or whatever. And it, I had to sort of think about it and reconcile, or or maybe not reconcile, but at least grapple with the sort of juxtaposition between <clears throat> between the people's behavior in a disaster and these these Theorists who were talking about, you know, the problems of the modern world, Um, and so I really, I guess, I ended up coming down on the side of the disaster studies people, (laughs) um, and just kind of saying, you know, I don't dwell on it a lot in the in the book, but but to sort of say, you know, this is an interesting, this is an interesting kind of corrective, perhaps, or at least it makes us to kind of makes us reconsider some of those uh, late nineteenth century social theorists who are so worried about modernity and. to say that, you know, maybe in this case, it wasn't as bad as they thought, um, that in fact, there still were enough social bonds, social ties between people living in this big modern city that they were able to stay connected in some way at the moment, at the very moment when you would expect, uh, things to fall apart, mm-hmm. um, and you know one of the things that i sometimes talk about is kind of example an example of that or some evidence of that there were posters that were put up all around the city um <clears throat> asking for for donations for people to uh bring money to give to to give to relief efforts and so um in a lot on a lot of those posters that people were that people would see around the city it would say very explicitly you know we have a duty we have a responsibility to help people um, in even though our neighborhood is not flooded, we have a responsibility to help the people in those other neighborhoods that are flooded. And I, I found this particularly interesting in on the posters that were hung up in some of the very wealthy neighborhoods. Um the for instance the Eight Arrondissement in Paris, which is the, the area of the Champs Elysees and that kind of very posh neighborhood. Um and it very explicitly said, you know, we have a we have a, a responsibility, even though our neighborhood is, is not as damaged as others, we need to Recognize, I mean, it didn't say quite like this, but the, the thrust of it was that, that we have to realize that we're all Parisians. You know, we're all uh, connected in, in some kind of way. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I think that this was, to me, the most revealing part of the book because I had never really thought of things like the Paris flood of 1910, the subject of your book, but also World War One and World War Two as sort of mm-hmm. tests of these theories. And I think that, uh, as you point out, really you have to kind of reach the opposite conclusion about modern nation states and that is that Mm. when they are put under stress they become much stronger. I'm reminded of much stronger I should say than their early modern counterparts. I mean I study Russian history and I can tell you that around 1600 the Russian state was put under some reasonable stress and it simply fell apart. Mm -hmm. There there was no Russian state between about 1605 and um, Mm -hmm. 1613. It it literally fell apart and um, and in this case, we see something very different. And also you think of uh, stresses like World War One, but also World War II in the German case where, mm-hmm. you know, their cities were literally bombed to rubble and even they fight to the last day of the war. Right, Th- this right. is a very, I think, a very modern response to mm-hmm. to disaster. It's it's not what you see in early modern states. What do you think accounts for that?
0: Well, I, you know, I try to to think a little bit about that um, in the book. And I, I, I drew on at least one place in the book, I drew on the, the – you know Benedict Anderson's idea of imagined communities. Uh, I mean, many people <laughs> draw draw on those ideas, but but I think there is something that certainly I was seeing in this story of the flood, where just like in that example I gave a minute ago of the of the posters, you know, there was this kind of language, even very explicitly at times, of people saying, people articulating this idea that we are able to imagine ourselves somehow as in community with other people who are not part of our you know, who, who are not necessarily like us in every way, but there are ways in which we see them as like us mm-hmm. in some fundamental ways. Because um, the other thing I talk about in, in the book is, and it's, it's part of what drew me to this project and what I thought was so surprising, is that, you know, Paris and, and France more generally are very, very divided at this moment. You know, it's, it's, we sometimes talk about the, this period, you know, right before World War One as the, the Belle Epoque, the beautiful time. You know, it's this time of of... Creation of new ideas and of you know sort of um, uh, experimentation and, and creativity, but it's also talked about as the fin de siecle, right? It's the ending of something. There's this idea of crisis, of something coming to a conclusion, of something decaying, and 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 very often French historians I think talk about this time as one of a real deep division mm-hmm. and crisis. You know, people are divided politically. They're divided by their religious views. They're divided by um, economic class divisions. And, and the city, of course, is also very divided along class lines. And one of the things that Hausman's redesign of the city does is that it pushes poor and working class people out to the edges of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, it displaces them. When he when builds those beautiful boulevards you were talking about earlier, it, it uproots a lot of poor and working class people into uh, other neighborhoods. And so there is a real sense that for all of its modernity and beauty that paris is a is a real divided city and that's kind of what i expected to find and yet what i found were people talking about you know we are parisians and and to me that kind of at least in one sense that did kind of evoke that idea of the imagined community that they were still able to see themselves somehow as connected to people that they were different than maybe different religious group or different social class or different political persuasion Um, You know, and there really is deep political division. I mean, this is just after the Dreyfus Affair, um, where people are really, you know, torn over um, some very fundamental uh, questions about the nature of French identity, what it means to be French and what the the French state should be doing and, you know, um, what values it should represent. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's one way that I came to talk about it was, was, was through that tried and true, yep. <laughs> um, familiar idea of imagined community, but it, but it kind of made sense to me, I think in, in this context.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I tend to think these communities are a little bit more than imagined precisely because they do seem to motivate people to act, uh, altruistically. And also your right. book, your book prompted another thought and, and it actually it's suggested in the book, you know, what the. The, the narrative that developed after the, the flood in France was one of a moment of national solidarity, largely. Right. Um, and, and this was sort of ginned up by the press in various ways. and became mm-hmm. the moment we all came together. Um, and and it, I guess it's inevitable that we compare this to Katrina in the United States. Um, and, and here the narrative is quite the opposite, is that right. this tore us apart. And, I'm, and, and actually your book made me skeptical of that because um i i'm wondering that if in 50 years some historian is going to write the history of hurricane katrina and find that uh, it is a peculiar aspect of our press mm-hmm. and it's interest that focused on division rather than self-sacrifice. Do you have any thoughts about that? Do you have any guesses or
0: Well, that's I, I, that's a really interesting uh thought. I'd have to I'd have to think more about that. Um because i hadn't really thought about that particular point, although i have thought a lot about sort of comparisons with after Hurricane Katrina, um, I was invited to come to go down to New Orleans and go to talk. And and when I was down there, a lot of the people who I uh, was talking with, you know, they were saying to me, "Oh, there's so many similarities between your book, what you talk about in your book, and Katrina." And they were really sort of interested in the in the similarities. But they would tell me about some of these their thoughts. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, there were real, some real differences too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was kind of struck by the differences in a way, even though it's Katrina that sort of inspired me to. To begin um, working on this, but mm-hmm. I think that um, I think that you're right that that how we talk about a disaster in some ways is almost as important as the disaster itself. I mean that how we talk about it constitutes the meaning of what that disaster comes to be in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great book I don't know um, if you've looked at this book, but there's a a great new book by Rebecca Solnit called "The Paradise Built in Hell," mm-hmm. um, which talks about a lot of these ideas about disaster and about the way that we talk about the way we talk about disasters and and you know one of the points that she makes is kind of what I was saying a minute ago about how about how we're more used to the narrative that comes out of films of you know the disaster movie where everything just goes you yep. know crazy mm-hmm. um and I think maybe because we are used to that that narrative that um we that I think probably our media tends to look for. You know the media always looks for moments of drama conflict um you know where things go wrong it's yeah. it's they're they're less good at i think looking where <laughs> where things are going right yeah. um but the way that those narratives then get spun out i think are really um are really crucial there was another another book published not too long ago, an edited collection called the resilient city um by Vale and campanella and it was uh that's also a book that influenced me a lot because it it, it was it very much engaged with some of these questions about how we tell the stories of the disasters that um, that we experience. And and I think that it is, you know, it is worth sort of thinking about um, the differences, say, between this event, 1910, and something like Katrina. And it will be interesting to see how, like you said, 50 years from now, how do we talk about Katrina? Is it a moment when things fall apart and it leads to, you know, the the political collapse of uh, one particular party and, you know, all the sort of Mm -hmm. repercussions, or is it, looking back, is it a moment when we realize that, you know, how many people, how many people gave money to, you know, relief efforts in Katrina? Uh,
1: How
0: many, how many groups have gone down, you know, on alternative spring break or church groups or whoever have gone down to, to help and to rebuild, you know, I mean, in other words, that side of it sometimes doesn't get as much press. The, the, the idea of people, going to help and pulling together and, you know, and what has it meant even for people in New Orleans who are thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be a New Orleanian and, and how that sense of identity seems to have actually in some ways been strengthened. Um, you know, the the idea that New Orleans is a special place, that it does have its own distinct way of being. Um, and even those people who are New Orleanians in exile who've left, who left after Katrina, I think many of them still feel that sense of, of rootedness
1: in in New Orleans. Yeah, that's a, you, you mentioned something that, that, that I've thought about it a lot, and, and, and that is precisely the lack of attention in the United States on the the massive national release a- effort on the on the part of volunteers. I know that in here in Iowa, since it floods every other year here, yeah. lots of students went down to New Orleans after the flood. Yeah, um, and uh, you know they came back with stories of how that you know they had helped the New Orleanians, and um, and the New Orleanians were helping themselves. And then of course we have the Iowa flood of. Uh, 2008, where, you know, and our narrative about that is the community instantly pulled together and everybody was sandbagging all of a sudden. That's not quite true. Um, but, but but it really was the case, that's the story we tell. It is the case, that's the story we tell about it, is that there were none of these divisions or anything like that that you, that you apparently saw, or at least were reported in the press. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say, too, that, you know, I,
0: I, I don't want to say that the, about the Paris flood, that the only thing that happens is that people come together. I mean, it is a complicated story, and I do talk about Things like, um, you know, the fact that there was looting that was going on, and and, and some of it was of course, of course, sort of the fear of looting. Um, that was another part of the, the way that the, the the narrative gets told. Um, even at the time, is you know we're afraid that these looters are coming in, but there really were actual you know accounts of that as well, and hoarding, and and um, you know when the government asked for hotels to open up their rooms for evacuees, there were some hotel owners who said, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want, uh, you know, I want to. For whatever reason, I don't want to have to have these people in my hotel, and they had to sort of apply pressure and get the the hotel union to agree to open up these hotel rooms so there were clearly you know stories that I discovered in the in the nineteen ten flood where people didn't pull together where it was a more complicated you know working through some of those things um and I think that's probably true in any disaster there's there is that impulse to work together there's also the the a kind of you know way in which you know, maybe some of those social ties, like Durkheim and others talk about, maybe they are stretched to the breaking point under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a mixture, really, of of both. And and that's part of I think what's so for, for me was so interesting about this 1910 flood story is that um, I really got to see I think some of the the, the complexities
1: um, at work in a mm-hmm. in an event like this. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's it's a fascinating instance. Why don't we talk a little bit about the. Um, the flood itself and its aftermath, what was the mortality rate? How many folks died? That's a great question, and
0: I get that question a lot. And I, I don't have a good definitive answer because the records, um, it's hard to tell from the records how many people died. Um, you know, if you look at the official records of number of drownings um, in January of 1910, it's a very, very small number. Um, but when I look at in the in the press and in, in first hand accounts, anecdotal accounts, Um, You know, there are all these discussions of people being swept away by the river, um, or there are accounts, for instance, of people committing suicide because they were afraid that they were going to die, and so they just went ahead and did it themselves. So it's impossible to really get a definite number on how many died. It's not a lot. It it can't be a huge number. I think if it were a huge number, more people would have remembered the flood. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of macabre to think, but the disasters we remember are the ones where people die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's definitely not a huge number, but there were, you know, something like um, 50,000 people who were, who went to the hospital with some kind of injury uh, and something like 20,000 households or so evacuated um, during this. So even though the, the death numbers weren't high, the number of people who, you know, had to really, um, you know, who were affected by this in some very profound way were, those numbers were significant. Mm-hmm.
1: So there was no great outbreak of Disease, disease, which is often associated with raw sewage floating around,
0: right? And that was something that people were very afraid of. There was a real fear that um, that there would be this widespread outbreak of of typhoid or something. Um, but that didn't happen either, um, for for all sorts of reasons. Um, partly because there was the volume of water was so much, and it was moving through the city that it was essentially flushing uh, the city um, and taking away any of those things. Um, also because the city. Once the water began to recede, uh, the police embarked upon a, a massive uh, disinfection effort, and the police and the city's health uh, services. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were going around and, and spraying and spreading chemicals everywhere, and, and giving very specific orders. Mm-hmm. About the police prefect Louis Lepine, who I talk about a lot in the book. He's sort of a he's kind of a hero in the book, uh, or maybe hero is not quite the right word, but he's a major figure who who plays a, an important role. Um, because at that time, the police, prefect, anything related to the city's operation fell under his jurisdiction. And so something like a flood, you know, he was clearly sort of the person on the ground um, overseeing most of the, uh, the rescue efforts. But he issued very specific instructions about um, how to disinfect your house, how to disinfect your business. And bakeries, for instance, had very specific regulations, and they had to be inspected. The ovens had to be inspected before they could bake bread again. Um, so all of those things, I think, contributed to the fact that there was not a massive outbreak of disease, even though a lot of people really worried for quite a while that, that that's what, exactly what would happen.
1: Mm-hmm. What about uh, property loss? And I mean both general property loss and I guess what you might call hallmark property loss. Is there any mm-hmm. buildings that were there in 1910 that we would like to have seen today that were swept away or anything like that?
0: I, I don't think so. I think that, um, that there, there are not any sort of major, like, landmarks or um, – or anything like that, that were were damaged beyond repair. And that's, I think, another reason why this flood is not something that people have talked as much about, even though it was a major event for that moment. It's kind of been lost in some ways to history. People haven't really told this story. Um, You know, if if the Eiffel Tower had collapsed, everyone would have known (laughs) um, about this flood. And there were rumors, you know, there was talk about, oh, the Eiffel Tower was going to collapse. But you can certainly see in in many of the photographs um, of the flood, you can see a lot of very famous buildings that were uh, that were sitting underwater. The one that I like the best was the um is the photograph of the Orsay. Um again with the time it was a train station. Mm-hmm. And the, the main hall, many people I'm sure have been in the museum, what's now the museum yeah. and there's a, the that central hall with the big arched window mm-hmm. um and you can see that uh that whole space sitting under feet of water um in some of these photographs and it's it's really interesting um to to think about you know what what that space would have looked like under um under so many feet of water. The you know I've got in the book I talk about some estimates of, of you know numbers of property loss and um you know it's something like four hundred million francs at the time and um it would have been you know billions of, of euros in today's dollars. Um but it's another one of those things that's really hard to calculate exactly because um you know it's it's hard to know you can you can tally up to some extent you can tally up things like you know actual you know repairs, damages, cleaning you can tally up um you know road repairs or building repairs but but some of the other kinds of things you know how many how many dollars were lost because of um you know that hotels had to cancel reservations or, or other kinds of things it's hard to really know exactly how much what the what the real economic impact um, of something like this would have been.
1: Another question I had had to do with actually photographers because this thing is very well documented. Um, It it, is, Was this one of the first instances in which people – I don't know, people in general, but a lot of – it seems like people were running around taking pictures of the thing. And I know because I did a little investigation online that there is – there were a lot of postcards. Postcards of the flood were very popular. I mean French postcards in the late 19th century, we should tell people were of naked ladies. Those were the famous ones, <laughs> but some these, of them, yeah. yeah, some of them, yeah. But but the, those were ones that were traded. These, but the, there are tons of postcards. People were very interested in taking pictures of it.
0: That's right, and that's that's um, that's kind of how I came to this project. I mean, like I said before, you know, when I was in the sewers looking around and on that tour, it was a photograph that that alerted me to the to the existence or to the to the fact that this flood had taken place in the first place. And then once once I began to investigate, yeah, I found hundreds of of photographs, and that's partly why. I, as I said before I made this website that has some of those photographs. But you can find books um that have been published that, that have a lot of these and, and some people have uploaded them to the web and so if you just, you know, search on the web for Paris nineteen ten flood, mm-hmm. probably what you'll find are lots and lots of, of images. Um and it's it's the the, the the postcard as a as a format, um was relatively new at this time not totally new i mean it had really been kind of introduced this sort of postcard had really been introduced around the the time of the maybe the 1889 World's fair kind of in, in its biggest you know kind of the, the golden age of postcards was kind of the late 19th century um but the thing about those postcards is that most of the postcards other than the ones you were referring to the naked ladies um most of the postcards really sort of emphasize, kind of like they do today, I guess, the the beauty of the city. You know, they were showing off landmarks, and and it makes sense that postcards would be popular at World's Fairs because they'd be a souvenir of your trip to Paris or of your visit to the World's Fair. Um, You could have a, a photograph of your own on this postcard that you could buy on the street for not very much money of some of the the beautiful uh, landmarks of the city there were also postcards though of kind of what i would call everyday life i mean you can you can find postcards and i have some um of people just kind of you know bakers selling bread or people walking through the streets or um you know other kinds of things but they but they even though they're of everyday life they still kind of fit into that idea of of the picture of the picturesque you know sort of the, the romance of paris the beauty of paris even the beauty of everyday life um what is remarkable about the flood postcards is that they they show a very different paris um you know it's not the beautiful paris it's in many ways it's the it's paris at a time of crisis mm-hmm. although i've done i've got an article coming out um in the journal of urban history uh, in january 2011 where i talk about some of the narrative strategies that that emerge from these postcards and in some ways, ironically, there are many of these flood postcards which are themselves also beautiful um because they use light and reflection and um and kind of photographic you know um strategies to make the water actually look uh, look attractive mm-hmm. um but it is sort of unexpected to find to find Disaster postcards from that era, and yet, um, you know, the the flood was there on postcards. But there have been other disasters too. The the one I I reference in the book and on the website is the 1909 earthquake in Messina, Italy, mm-hmm. um, which is right down at the tip of the the boot uh, of Italy. And this is a massive earthquake that created tidal waves and destroyed lots of uh, of of stuff down in the, in southern Italy and northern Sicily. And there are also postcards of that disaster as well. Um, in fact, some people who saw Paris in 1910 compared it to Messina in 1909 because that was kind of the most recent disaster that people were familiar with, and they were familiar with it in part through the postcards of the Messina earthquake. Um, and so that was kind of a reference point for some people.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I I did some research on the idea of documenting things. The word mm-hmm. to document, uh, and and it becomes at, at about this time it becomes strongly associated with pictures. Right. Prior to that, documenting something meant collecting paper fragments about it. But at this right. point, it's it, you don't really have something documented unless you have a picture of it. Right. Um, which, which is kind of curious. I, w- I wanted to ask you about, um, since time is drawing near, uh, about the um, lasting impact of the flood.
0: Um, it's it's interesting. And I, I try to grapple with it a little bit, especially in the epilogue um, in the book. Um, you know, as I've said, I've alluded to this already, that this is a, an event that in many ways is largely forgotten because, you know, the city is rebuilt. Um, they put up a few plaques uh, and a few marks along the river that show the high water mark, which you can see today. But a lot of people, if, if you're walking along the river and you see a, a mark along one of the bridge supports, it says 1910. That's all it says. And if you don't know anything about the flood, you don't know what that refers to. Um and so so strangely this is something that kind of vanished in many ways from people's memory. Um and it's certainly something that historians haven't really talked a lot about. So um so it seems like, at least at first glance, that there that there hasn't that there wasn't a, a kind of impact, and yet the nineteen ten flood does still even today serve as the 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 city's official sort of reference point for the current day flood plans. They, they always look back at the 1910 flood sort of as the worst case scenario flood, and they've used that to design what they would do now um, in the event of, of a flood. What also happened was, in addition to sort of repairs and, and kind of, you know, um, reinforcements to walls and things that would that would prevent something like this from happening again, ultimately, and it took a while, it didn't, it didn't really happen until after World War II, but what the what the government did was build a series of reservoirs upstream from Paris along the Seine they're called the Great Lakes of the Seine um and these lakes um serve as uh reservoirs so that if the water level is high, they can open the gates and allow water to come into these reservoirs and essentially take it out of the channel of the Seine um and hold it in reserve in the hopes of lowering the the overall water level of the river and um it's it's been used numerous times and it seems to have worked so far. There's still question there's still a question about whether, you know, if there was a if there was a nineteen ten level flood, whether it would work um sufficiently and that's something that I guess can't be answered unless there is another flood of that magnitude, which hopefully there won't be. Um, but it is something that I think is very much known among sort of planners and people who are, you know, interested in um and, and kind of you know, people who are whose job it is to prepare for floods. It may not be widely known among sort of everyday average Parisians, um, but it is something that that does serve as a as a continual reference point for people who are thinking about these issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Was um, 1910 the last time it flooded?
0: It was the last time that it flooded of any magnitude like this. I mean, there have been floods since then. There were um, some floods in the late '90s and the early 2000s um, where. There was some real worry that you know it would it would have some devastating consequences. It didn't do that, um, and so we've not really seen a flood, a disastrous flood, um, since since then. There there were some there were some high there was some high water in the 1950s as well, because I've seen some photographs of that uh, of that too. But nothing of this same kind of magnitude.
1: Mm-hmm. I see. Well, here in the Paris of the Midwest. Iowa City, we we have their floods, I think. I'm not quite sure what happened. So, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for being on the show. You've taken up a lot of your time. It's a really terrific book, uh, and I hope that people go out and buy it. Um, why don't we close the interview with our traditional final question, and that okay. is, what are you working on now?
0: Well, um, at the moment, uh, I've got several ideas sort of floating around in my head, but at the moment, I'm interested in a very different topic in many ways, although still related very much to my interest in the city of Paris. Um, And I'm interested in the funeral of Victor Hugo. Um, Another one of those moments that people sort of, people know about, but haven't really talked extensively about it. And I'm interested in thinking about this funeral as a moment where, um, you know, Hugo is of course one of the most famous men of his day and the funeral, which was initially intended to be a private funeral, gets co-opted by the government and turned into a state funeral. And the the state pays for it, but the state then also gets to organize it. And what they organize is this enormous procession through the streets of Paris, and according to some accounts, two million people come out um, in the streets to pay their respects to Victor Hugo as his body moves from where it had been lying in state underneath the Arc de Triomphe down the Champs-Élysées and across the river and ultimately up to the Pantheon where he is buried. Um, and this funeral is one of those events that is just sort of packed with significance and, and, you know, not only because Hugo himself was a great cultural figure, but also he was a very political and politically charged figure. Um, but also, you know, for instance, the the Pantheon which had been had, had originally started as a church and had been turned into a secular space during the revolution and had gone back and forth between between religious and secular is now secularized again for the final time in 1885 for Hugo's funeral. Um and so it's it's one of those spaces that's it's very contentious. Um and so the whole event is something that really is kind of tied up with a lot of of questions about, you know, um about politics and culture and religion and uh and literature and ideas, and sort of you know what Hugo symbolizes um and I want to try if I can to to think a little bit more about that and and sort of unpack that and and think about it also within the context of the urban space and you know the kinds of choices that the government makes um in terms of where this where his funeral procession will go you know how do they how are they sort of using the urban space of the city. For these very political reasons, um, and trying to use Hugo's funeral to make a statement about politics at this
1: moment—that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. intriguing. I, you know, I hadn't really thought about Hugo's funeral or anybody's funeral like that. Although it's true that in the Russian tradition, there's, there's been a lot of, you know, P- P- Pushkin centennials and things like mm-hmm. this are, are constantly the subject of academic treatments um, in um, Russian scholarship. But yeah, Hugo—he's one of my favorite guys I guess so anyway it sounds like a terrific project and I hope you uh, come on the show when uh, you finish it in four years I'd love to (laughs) alright Jeff well thanks for being on the show I appreciate it thanks for having me alright bye 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 you've been listening to an interview with Jeffrey Jackson about his new book Paris Underwater how the city of light survived the great flood of 1910 I'm Marshall Poe the host of New Books in History I hope you have a great week